This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or leave a review at iTunes or mormondiscussionspodcast.org. It makes a big difference and it makes my day. We did a podcast a couple weeks ago about words. One of the words that I've been thinking about recently is the word commandment. Commandments are tricky things. It's a tricky word. It's hard to know what counts as a commandment, so that's tricky. You know, there's some obvious things that are unequivocally commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill comes to mind. The rest of the Ten Commandments, those are obviously commandments, but that's not an exhaustive list. You know, but we'd like the list to be totally exhaustive, but there is no real list anywhere. It's when we teach our kids in primary to keep the commandments. One of the questions you often hear is, well, where do I find the list of commandments? You know, we don't really have that list. Or rather, we have tons and tons of lists, and they overlap, and, you know, you can't point to a book that contains all commandments. So that's a problem. It's also hard to know what counts as a commandment. Some things we can all agree on, of course, you know, thou shalt not kill, steal, you know, the basics. And then there are things that we can agree are not commandments, like don't go into debt or go to the temple this many times per year or, you know, we can all agree that those things aren't commandments. They're just guidance, good recommendations. But then there's this whole area in between where some people will think something's a commandment and other people say, no, that's not a commandment. And there'll be arguments about who gave the commandment and whether it's from God or just from some guy or just a tradition even. This problem is particularly acute when we think about our manuals, our instruction books. You know, is is what's in this week's lesson, is that is that stuff taught in gospel doctrine all kind of commandment-like stuff, or is it just sort of, you know, quasi, I'm not sure what you'd call it, some sort of quasi-commandment stuff made up by the church correlated? Who knows? And then there's the problem with the word itself. It's a pretty loaded word. It's a militaristic word to begin with. Outside of church, that's a context where you hear the word. I mean, they don't use commandment, but they use command. You know, it's not a request, soldier. It's a command. And the inference there is if you don't execute the command, you're going to, you know, end up in the brig or shot for treason. Or, you know, there's severe consequences to not executing the commands of your superior in the army. And that's kind of the vibe you get when you hear the word commandment. This is a commandment. So the inference we all draw subconsciously is that if we don't execute it, something horrible is going to happen to us, like a court-martial and then being sent to Leavenworth, which is kind of an element of fear, isn't it? So you got all these things going on when you start talking about commandments. And then if you listen to General Conference, well, every commandment is the most important commandment, the most vital, the most critical thing you can do is blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of that going on inside our community, too. All of this has massive implications when you think about the atonement and the analogies that we use to explain the atonement are built upon our understandings and our reactions to the word commandment itself, aren't they? 
You're given a commandment, you break it, or you don't execute it, and so therefore you need to be court-martialed, sent to Leavenworth. You know, you're in handcuffs, condemned on your way to the brig, and as a condemned person, you need someone to come and save you. That's how we explain the need for the atonement, isn't it? When we're using these militaristic, legalistic words like commandments, when we're living inside this sort of paradigm. That's how our brain processes the whole thing. It starts with the words. It starts with commandment itself. Now, we can think about this all very differently. And in some cultures, they do. Places where they don't speak English, which is most of the world, by the way. But instead of thinking of ourselves as soldiers in some army with an affirmative duty to execute the commands of our superiors or suffer the consequences of court-martial and spending time in the brig, instead of thinking that way, you can think of life as, I don't know, creating a sculpture or a painting or something. And the commandments aren't commandments. They're rules, guidance, helpful tips, a way to structure your composition even a technique. Well, then when you're breaking a commandment, you're not really breaking a commandment. You're just misapplying a technique or you haven't mastered the technique or you're not creating a composition according to known best practices. Well, then not doing things a certain way has a completely different result, consequence, less penal, less militaristic and legal. You know, it's an entirely different analogy or paradigm to understand what God's trying to teach us or do for us. Not everybody likes looking at life this way, though, because like in art class, it's hard to grade the work of others and the work of yourselves and to compare it. Life's a little more ambiguous, tough to sort, makes the atonement certainly harder to understand in that sort of paradigm. I mean, what's the atonement really doing? Helping someone create a more aesthetically pleasing sculpture? Well, that's a little too abstract. That doesn't seem to make sense. So that kind of view of life doesn't seem to have the metaphorical legs that the legal militaristic paradigm does. It may be a more accurate paradigm. It may be closer to what God's really doing. Who knows at the end of the day? But it's not as tight of a metaphor, of an analogy. So it isn't as widely implemented at least in Western culture, where I think anyone who's listening to this podcast resides. In our community, it's complicated, all of this, by the fact that the authorities that be have not sanctioned this new kind of metaphor or alternative type of paradigm, have they? We're lost in language that's legalistic, militaristic, commandments, breaking of commandments, the associated court-martial, The need for justice, the atonement filling in for justice when we can't satisfy it ourselves. Because that seems to be the sanctioned, authoritative, USDA-approved way of thinking of things. What we forget, though, is that all of this, the legalistic paradigm, the sculpture paradigm, whatever paradigm you want to think about, it's all just a big metaphor. A rubric used to teach Principles to us that are eternal, universal, to guide us through life. And we use stuff like this because you got to start somewhere. Because we all need a starting point of reference. And it really doesn't matter what the starting point of reference is. 
We just need a, a data point somewhere, a point by which we can start measuring, comparing, contrasting. But we don't understand it that way in our community. We get hung up on the metaphor as being the thing itself, something I've talked about before. And we get hung up on enforcing or measuring our understanding of the particular, particular details of the metaphor rather than pointing out that it's all just kind of a metaphor to help us sort of understand something that we just haven't experienced yet. We get lost in the metaphor. We think that life is the metaphor or that we're all slaves to the metaphor. Now, all this can become very confusing when you get to the point in life where you have enough experience to see the limits of the metaphor or the misapplication or you have an opinion like, you know, it really isn't like the way they described it or taught it to me. It's really more like this. That's my experience. And you start to think, well, you know, if I were teaching this anew based on my experience, I would probably use a different metaphor. I would use different words because, well, the old way of teaching didn't really help me understand it. And then when I went through it, I realized it was quite different than I was taught. And But then there's another group and they say, no, no, I'd rewrite it this way. And then there's people who are still lost in the metaphor who want to jam all of life into the metaphor and they get very angry and start to think that you're not playing by the rules that somehow we've all agreed to or did we because, well, and it gets really crazy and people get really crazy. And some people say, I'm going to be the guardian of the metaphor. And if people don't agree with the metaphor, I'm going to excommunicate them. And other people say, well, you know, my experience doesn't really compare favorably with the metaphor. So I'll be leaving. Goodbye. And then some people get really mad at the purveyors of the metaphor. And they want to chastise them, make them change the entire metaphor. Lock, stock, and barrel. Let's start doing, using new nomenclature. And until you do that, I'm going to think you stink. And institutions crop up around the various viewpoints. Organizations, and before you know it, well, no one even knows what they're talking about anymore. Things have taken on a life of their own. And people decry this, they complain about this, but I have news for you folks. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it always will be. This is what happens generation after generation after generation. This is the repeating pattern of history. As generation after generation has tried to understand just what the point of all this life is. What are we supposed to be doing? Where are we going to go when this all ends? What are we supposed to be learning? What's the takeaway? And most importantly, am I doing it right? This is the question that keeps us up at night. This is the question that haunts us when we look at our children growing older year after year after year. As we watch our parents and grandparents fade and leave this realm. How do we know if we're doing it right? Does somebody tell me if I'm doing it right? Somebody just tell me what to do. But at the end of the day, no one can answer that question for you. Except you, which creates horrible fear, which then drives everything that we do. But if you recognize fear, if you notice it, if you're aware of it, it dissipates. 
It only has power when you're unaware of it, when you're not conscious of it. And so, as presumptuous as it's going to sound, I'm going to give you a new commandment. A new commandment I give unto you. Thou shalt be aware. Aware of your fear. Aware of the way you think. Aware of the way you use the metaphors. And aware of the fact that none of these things are you. You're something brighter, deeper, more eternal, separate from all of those things. Now, I know this is presumptuous. I'm not the Pope. I'm not Gandhi. I'm not an apostle. I'm just some guy. So I have no rights to issue commandments. Although the whole issuing commandments is part of this metaphor we talked about. So maybe I do have the right to issue commandments because they're not really commandments. They're something else. And we're just talking about it symbolically. And maybe the metaphor is more like art or making sculpture. In that case, think of it this way. As you make the sculpture of your life, be aware, aware of your fear, aware of your reliance on metaphors, the way you think. Be aware that all those things are separate from who you are and what you're creating, that that's the important thing. Now, I don't want to talk about the penalties that you'll suffer if you break this commandment, but I do want to let you know of a way you can tell if you're not keeping it or If you want to use the art paradigm, if you're not using it to create a more aesthetically pleasing life. And that's if you're walking around clueless. If you're clueless, then you're not keeping the commandment I just gave you. Thou shalt be aware. Seems so obvious it is almost insulting that I have to say it. But, well, let's face it, we're all clueless sometimes and we all need things that are obvious to be pointed out to us from time to time. Clueless people aren't necessarily evil people. You know, often they're really trying to do the right thing. They're not like hypocrites. Hypocrites say one thing and do another, so they're not like hypocrites, though they could be. Clueless people aren't derelicts. They're usually not irresponsible. They're not slovenly. They can actually come across as being quite savvy. So what sets a clueless person apart? A clueless person is someone who doesn't have all the information yet is so certain they do. Someone who doesn't have all the facts but acts as though they know everything. Someone who doesn't know all the commandments but acts as if they're keeping every single one. That's a clueless person. There's something really important out there that has escaped their attention. That they are clueless about and the results for the rest of us are categorical irritation which is a bummer but that's sort of an aside the real result is that they just aren't moving forward they're just being clueless they're doing math with the numbers one through seven only they're playing the game of baseball with only the first two bases doing surgery without the scalpel or anesthetic or you know think of any analogy you can i think you get my point Now, I think one of the problems in our community, I mean, not just our community, but life in general, is that people who are the most slavishly dedicated to the metaphors of our lives, the paradigms of our lives, are often simultaneously the most clueless and, paradoxically, in positions of authority over us, our leaders. Not always, but often. This happens in the army. This happens at the workplace. This happens at church 
Because dedication to the paradigm, to the metaphor, however you want to think about it, makes them seem really smart, makes them seem really savvy, and so they are seen as potential leaders. But at the same time, this devotion renders them almost irreversibly clueless, almost unable to keep this fundamental commandment that I just gave, thou shalt be aware. Now, I know I'm getting hysterical. I'm getting hysterical. I am. I'm getting hysterical. I got to calm it down. So let me reel it back a little bit and give you a specific example of what I mean. I have a, well, I almost told you the relationship to this person. I know someone very well that I've grown up with, that I've known my whole life, who was made a stake president, oh, three, four years ago, maybe three years ago. And he is so clueless, it about drove my older brother out of the church. And my older brother is is about as conservative and obedient and traditional as you can get. Yet when they called this other guy to be the stake president, it about wrecked his testimony because this other guy was so clueless. Now, how was he clueless? Well, he thought everything that came out of his mouth was right and inspired because he had the priesthood. He thought everything he did was important because he was related to elite members of the church aristocracy. He was facile with bending the rules of ethics, even honesty in business, because he was so sure that he deserved prosperity as a faithful Latter-day Saint. He wasn't operating with all the facts. He didn't have all the knowledge. He wasn't even keeping all the commandments, but he was so sure he was that he did that he had so he was a prototypical, clueless guy. And when they made him a stake president, it about ruined my brother's life. My brother started thinking deeply disturbing and unorthodox thoughts about the hierarchy of church and what could have inspired them to call this guy as a stake president. We've had that experience, I'm sure. I know I have. When someone is called into a position of prominence and you think to yourself, this is the, you know, the biggest phony jerk I've ever seen. And sometimes they're jerks, but often they're just clueless. It's all about their agenda, their stuff, their thing, their righteousness, their path to heaven. They're missing something, unaware of much. You know, and cluelessness is a hard thing for people to overcome. Thou shalt be aware is a tougher commandment to keep. You got to kind of try all the time. And even before that, there has to be some sort of breakthrough. And that breakthrough usually comes in the form of noticing something about yourself. You start noticing that there's really kind of two parts of yourself. There's this inner being, this inner spirit, and then there's this mind or ego or there's something else that's kind of operating on the outside. And once you notice this, then you can sort of watch the way your mind works, your ego operates. But you got to realize these two different parts of yourself. You got to be aware of that as a very first step. Before that, you can never keep the commandment, thou shalt be aware. Not totally. But if you can get to this first step, I'm going to kind of call it like being born again. If you can sort of be born again and realize there's something deeper 
in you. That's not your mind. It's not your conduct. It's not your ego. And then you can watch what your mind and your ego and all these things are doing. Well, that's kind of weird. That's kind of, that's kind of Eastern. But if you can get to that point, if you get, to, you know, it's kind of, again, it's kind of like being born again. If you can get to that point, then your life really starts to be different. You start living at a higher level because you are aware. And you even start to be aware that you're clueless. Now it's going to get really weird. And when you're aware that you're clueless, I just snapped my fingers. You hear that? Just like that, you're not clueless anymore. And you've kept the commandment, thou shalt be aware. And you've stopped committing the horrible sin of cluelessness. There's an old adage that they say at Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I have many sins and I have many bad addictions, but I've never been an alcoholic. But my first mission companion was an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic. And my very first week on my mission, he took us to an AA meeting in Hong Kong. So that was interesting. And he got up and said, hey, I'm Dave. I'm an alcoholic. You know, and I was like, well, Dave, you're, I thought you were elder, you know, so-and-so. I that's where my head was at when I was 19. I was offended that he was using his Christian name instead of the title of elder. But at Alcoholics Anonymous, they say, recognition is the first step of recovery. And so it is with keeping the commandment, thou shalt be aware. Once you're aware of how clueless you are, how much information, data you lack, then suddenly you're not clueless anymore. It's almost instantaneous. Now your mind and your ego can hijack you again and take you out of awareness and you can start running on autopilot and doing all this crazy narcissistic stuff or start being full of crap or start acting like you're the greatest thing that ever happened. You know, you, there's all sorts of pure mutations here. But all it takes to come back is to be aware that you're being clueless again and then you're keeping the commandment. Now, with all good commandments, there's a promise, and this I promise you. If you can be aware, your life will change dramatically. Now, change in and of itself is not worth much, so i got to say change dramatically for the better. You'll start being aware of little things that you do to hurt other people or to make yourself look better or to take advantage of others, or to get through an interview just to satisfy some paperwork requirement instead of really showing compassion. There are all sorts of things and ways that you're going to start being different just from following the simple commandment, thou shalt be aware. And sometimes we need a little help from beyond. I have another friend who I would call relatively clueless yeah he's relatively clueless and has been most of his most of his life very self-centered good guy you know nice guy but kind of full of himself a narcissist well after 20 years of marriage his wife came to him and said you are so self-absorbed i can't take it anymore if you don't change i'm leaving he had never thought of himself ever before as being self-centered narcissistic full of himself ever that's how clueless he was that's how long he had shown nothing but evil disregard for the commandment thou shalt be aware and this was a jolt to his system and he 
sort of looked in the mirror and he said, holy, you know, I thought I was doing things right. You know, and that's why it's hard to describe cluelessness because they really think they're doing the right thing. Their intentions are, are good. They're motivated to do what's proper and correct often. But it really set him back. Yet he began to be aware of his cluelessness. He began to be aware of his self-centeredness. He began to be aware of what his ego and his mind was telling him when he was being hijacked. And it completely changed his life. He's a different person. Well, not totally, but he's working on it. So God can help you with this. And I also think it's a rite of passage of sorts to get to the other side. And what is the other side? Well, the other side is a place where you have experience and you no longer need the paradigm. Where you know and you don't need to believe anymore. Where you're totally aware. Where it's impossible to be clueless. We don't talk a lot about this state in our community, except in the most abstract and tangential ways. We describe the celestial kingdom as a place where everyone knows and is known perfectly. Or we describe it as a place where we are all one. Or a place where there's no contention. So we don't have great language to describe this state of being on the other side. But I think it's a place where you don't need paradigms or theories or metaphors anymore because everyone's had the experience. You don't worry about being clueless and you're not irritated by the cluelessness of others because everyone's completely aware and they see things for what they are and they see people for who they are and it all seems to make sense. That's a place I want to be. That place sounds great. Instead, we put our metaphors on steroids when we talk about the next life or the other side, or the ultimate state, or however you want to think about it, we'll all be wearing badges and doing missionary work on the other side, preaching the gospel, propounding our metaphors and our paradigms. I hope that's not the case. I'm open to it, but it sounds like just a lot of church meetings. This same older brother who was so offended by the stake president, he told me once, in a rare exhibition of irreverence, that if the celestial kingdom is just a lot of church meetings, well, he'll opt out. That sounds like a bummer to him. It sounds like a bummer to me. It sounds like a metaphor on steroids, a paradigm, paradigm gone wild. I'm sure there'll be a good, healthy exchange of ideas. I'm sure there's more experience to be gained. I'm sure that there'll be some cluelessness to eliminate. But the idea that we're going two by two and knocking on the doors of all the Gentiles for eternity, well, that not only doesn't sound accurate, it sounds terrible. So, again, I'm open to it, but I hope that's not what we're going to be doing. Other metaphors that we put on steroids is that we'll all be practicing polygamy in the next life, right? Hasn't that metaphor served its purpose and gone all the way of the earth, still it lives on. So we see the power of these things, the importance of being aware and how critical it is to stop being so clueless. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail or find me at Facebook. 
at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.